Heavenly Father, we praise you that Christ is our only hope in life and death. And we praise you that we have his word that we can open, read, learn from. Thank you, these are words of life. And we pray, therefore, that you would help us as we come to these chapters in Judges, that you would teach us. Amen. So do turn in your Bible to Judges 17 and 18. Oh, by the way, music group, if, if you want to move now, now might, might be a good moment, um, rather than after the reading, because you may not spot when after the reading is, because I might jump back up. Thank you. Now, Andrew is going to be doing our reading for us, but I just thought I'd give you a little bit of an introduction just so you know where we're up to, or set the scene for these chapters. So we're in the third part of the book of Judges. So Judges 17 is where you need to turn to. It's page 261. We're in the third part of the book of Judges. There's a sort of introductory part, first couple of chapters, and then you get into the main part, the second part of the book of Judges, which contains the judges, um, which include people like um, Ehud and Gideon and Samson, and we've seen those judges, their flaws and uh, the ways they led the people of Israel. Now you come to the last few chapters of the book of Judges, you're into a new section which starts at at chapter 17. And this last section, it doesn't necessarily follow on chronologically after the previous bit, but it is rather just telling you this is the state of Israel at the time. There's a repeated refrain throughout that Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. So it's sort of saying this is the general way that the people were. Now, chapters 17 to 18 that we're going to look at this week focus on how bad things had got in terms of their religion, how they related to the Lord God. And then the chapters after that, chapters 19 to the end, are about their morality and how bad things were there. And just as a warning for next week, it is really bad. Like I said, I'm not going to be here. Andrew's going to preach on that. Um, And uh, well done, Andrew. Um, But it's horrific stuff that goes on in those last chapters. But we're looking at chapter 17 to 18, which is about their religion and how bad things got there. Now, in chapter 17 and 18, we're going to have both read. I'm going to introduce chapter 17 now. Andrew will read it. Then I'll introduce chapter 18. Then Andrew will read it. Now, in chapter 17, you focus in, you home in on one household. The household of a man called Micah. Now, like I say, this is to tell us what the nation was like. It's sort of typical of the nation. But this is one household, Micah. And what you'll see is he set up his own shrine with idols. And let's see what happens in this one household. So Andrew's going to come and read for us chapter 17. Thank you, Andrew. Judges chapter 17 on page 261. Now, a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord, 
for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So, after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make the idol. And it was put in Micah's house. Now, this man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, Live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. Okay, so that one household, you've got set up, he's set up now with idols, he's got a shrine, and he's now got a Levite that he has brought in to be his priest. Now we'll come back to this in due course, but uh, in chapter 17, you've focused on that one household. Now we'll go to chapter 18, and in chapter 18, uh, the focus shifts a bit to a whole tribe of Israel. Israel is split down into 12 tribes, and one of them is the tribe of Dan, the Danites, and we turn to them. Now the Danites, the tribe of Dan, were told by God where they could have as their land in, in Israel. But, and they were told that in the book of Joshua, the previous book, they were told, okay, Dan, you have this portion of the land. But the beginning of the book of Judges, you see, actually they couldn't take that land. You go back to chapter one to see that, they couldn't take it. So now at this stage, the Danites are thinking, we need our land, we want our land. And so they go in search for their own land, not the land that God told them that they could have, but they go way up north, or they want to go way up north to a, to a bit up in the north, and they like the look of that bit of land, and they think, we'll go and take that. So they send spies to check it out. The spies come back. This all happens in chapter 18. And then they send their army up to take the place, to take the city there. Now, as they go up and back, as they go up, they go past Micah's house. And you'll see. So, as they go up, first the spies, and then the army, let's see what happens as they come to Micah's house. Thank you, Andrew. In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle, because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. 
So the Danites sent five of their leading men from Zorah and Eshtaol to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all the Danites. They told them, go, explore the land. So they entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night. When they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So they turned in there and asked him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? He told them what Micah had done for him, and he said, He has hired me, and I am his priest. Then they said to him, Please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. The priest answered them, Go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. So the five men left and came to Laish, where they saw that the people were living in safety, like the Sidonians, at peace and secure. And since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. Also, they lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. When they, when they returned to Zorah and Eshtaol, their fellow Danites asked them, how did you find things? They answered, come on, let's attack them. We have seen the land and it's very good. Aren't you going to do something? Don't hesitate to go there and take it over. When you get there, you will find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put into your hands, a land that lacks nothing whatever. Then 600 men of the Danites, armed for battle, set out from Zorah and Eshtaol. On their way, they set up camp near Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. This is why the place west of Kiriath-Jerim is called Mahane Dan to this day. From there, they went on to the hill country of Ephraim and came to Micah's house. Then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their fellow Danites, do you know that one of these houses has an ephod, some silver gods and an image overlaid with silver? Now, you know what to do. So. They turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites, armed for battle, stood at the entrance of the gate. The five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, while the priest and the 600 armed men stood at the entrance of the gate. When the five men went into Micah's house and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They answered him, Be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? The priest was very pleased. He took the ephod, the household gods, and the idol, and went along with the people. Putting their little children, their livestock and their possessions in front of them, they turned away and left. When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. As they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, 
What's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? He replied, You took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask what's the matter with you? The Danites answered, Don't argue with us or some of the men may get angry and attack you and your family will lose your, fa lose your lives. So the Danites went their way and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. Then they took what Micah had made and his priest and went on to Laish against a people at peace and secure. They attacked them with the sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth Rehob. The Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. They named it Dan after their ancestor Dan, who was born to Israel, though the city used to be called Laish. There the Danites set up for themselves the idol, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrew. Um, do, on the back of the uh, orders of service that, uh, that you've received, there are some headings. If you want to follow that, you can follow where we're, where we're going with this. Um, now, it's worth knowing that in the Bible, it doesn't always tell you explicitly when things are wrong. It sometimes just describes things. The author sometimes just says, this is what happened. And you are to spot, we are to spot what is wrong from what we already should know from the Bible. But just because something is described doesn't mean to say it's got approval. Uh, that needs to be very clear in these last few chapters of Judges. So we're going to think, in these two chapters, 17 and 18, uh, the answers to three questions. What went wrong? So what's wrong? Then we'll think about where does it lead? And then we'll think about the remedy. First off, what went wrong? What's wrong in these chapters? There's a huge amount that's wrong. The first thing that we're going to spot is, well, it's not difficult to spot this one, is it? Worshipping idols. It's pretty obvious. Uh, there's a shrine at Micah's house. His mum makes a statue, which he sets up in that shrine. Uh, we discover uh, later on that when the Danites, when the army comes by in chapter 18, they steal... Uh, not just one statue, but it says household gods. So there's more than one. So what we have here is a shrine in Micah's house to many gods. And those gods are then taken and used by the whole tribe of Dan. They worship these gods. And uh, someone said there is probably a contrast here between the beginning of chapter 17, end of chapter 18. At the beginning of chapter 17, we discover this shrine in Micah's house to these gods. At the very end of chapter 18, it talks about um, the house of God 
that was in Shiloh, the house of God, the Lord God that was in Shiloh, whereas this house of gods in Micah's house. And there's a contrast between the two. Now, clearly, this is against God's commandments. First commandment of the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other gods before me. Second, that you should not make an image. You shouldn't make an image of the Lord God or of anything else and bow down to it. And they are breaking these commandments. And we are to spot this in the chapter. It's not hard to spot, is it, that this is where they've gone wrong. But notice, would you, they are not simply replacing the Lord with these gods. If you had asked any of the people in this chapter whether they worship the Lord, they would have said, yes, we worship the Lord. After all, Micah's mum, at one point early on in the chapter 17, says, the Lord bless you. And Micah himself, at the end of chapter 17, shows that he wants the Lord to be good to him. And the tribe of Dan, when the spies go check out the land way up in the north, Laish up in the north, they come back, they say, God is giving this to us. God is giving this into our hands. This isn't, you see, just idolatry where they switch God for another God. This is syncretism which is the worshipping of the Lord and adding in worship of other gods as well, which is forbidden in the Bible. Now, we must apply this to ourselves because we need to recognise here that we must not worship anything in place of God or alongside God. Now, there's direct application there, isn't there? If people are thinking, well, maybe you could worship Buddhism, you could, you could be a Buddhist and a Christian, or be a Hindu with their many gods and be a Christian. You go, no, you cannot do both. You cannot worship something else. You cannot be something else and be a Christian. And yet sometimes people think you can. But of course, it isn't just about those formal religions saying, well, I can do both. It's also about putting other things alongside God. Hear what Jesus says. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So it's worth us asking the question, isn't it? What things are we tempted to worship alongside God to say well I'll worship the Lord but I'll also worship this other thing what's that other thing that we are tempted to worship that maybe you're tempted to worship a helpful diagnostic question actually is on the questionnaire isn't it that we're going to use with others if we ask ourselves that first question what makes life worth living for you that's very revealing isn't it of our own hearts because if our answer is anything other than the Lord then it's helpful for us actually to see what's that other thing and that is the thing that maybe we're most likely to be tempted to worship alongside the Lord and Jesus says you can't do it you can't serve two things you'll hate one and love the other and that is what happens isn't it they will compete with one another what are things we're maybe likely to be tempted to worship maybe fulfillment our own fulfillment fulfillment of our children They've got to have uh, the experiences they want, try the things that they want. Maybe we're tempted to worship success or career or approval 
there can be a whole load of things, can't there? We mustn't worship idols. Second, though, what's the second thing they get wrong? They distort God's character. You know, a bad portrait. Um, you know, a bad portrait, you look at it and you go, that doesn't look like the person it's supposed to be. If I try to draw a picture of someone, it never looks like the person. As you go through the chapter, as you see the way Micah relates to the Lord, what you're to spot there is it's a distortion of God, isn't it? After all, let's focus in. End of chapter 17. So turn back the page if you're on page 262, go to page 261. End of chapter 17. It's quite interesting here. So Micah has set up in his house, his shrine, he's got his idols there, the statues, and he's now got a Levite in to be his priest. And notice what he says at the end of chapter 17, the last verse, verse 13. Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. It's interesting, isn't it? Now I know the Lord will be good to me. How does he think he relates to God? How does he think God relates to him? Well, the implication is God isn't given to being very generous, isn't it? I mean, he's not likely to be good to me unless I get the right things in place. If I get my household gods, if I get the statue, and if I get this Levite to be my priest, now I can persuade, I think now, surely God's going to be good to me because I've got all the things lined up. Now, again, we need to apply this to us because we might well be tempted to do something similar. It's our temptation, too, that we might think, Maybe God isn't very generous. And maybe if I get everything in, the, in a row, all the ducks in a row, if I get it all lined up, then God will be good to me. So if I do my Bible times faithfully day after day, if I spend longer in prayer, if I give generously, if I sacrifice my time for others, coming to church on Sunday, if I get all the ducks in a row, if I get it all lined up, surely... God will be good to me. And yet that is a distortion of who God is, isn't it? Wonderfully, he is not miserly in his goodness. He is overflowing with generosity. What does Ephesians say? Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. If you're a Christian, that is your condition, that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Or Psalm 84 verse 11 will come up on the screen. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favour and honour. No good thing does he withhold from those whose way of life is blameless. Is that you? Are you blameless? If you're a Christian, clothed in Christ's righteousness, you are. And God withholds nothing good from you. He is bountiful in his goodness. 
We can sometimes... I wonder, um, in your childhood, maybe... I wonder if you got pocket money. Some people did, some people didn't. I wonder how much you first got, how much your parents first gave you as pocket money. Maybe it's, ah, oh, I never got pocket money. Maybe you got, I don't know, 50p a month or something. And at the time you thought, wow. And then a bit later on, you realised how much your parents earned. Maybe. Maybe you discovered. And you thought, 50p a month? Is that it? Out of all that you get, that's all I get? I wonder whether we can be a bit like that with God. You know, this is what I've got. Is this it? Is this all I've got out of all that you could give? Of course, what the parents should then say to their child is, you do know everything that you have comes from me. I mean, the 50 people, yeah, I mean, there's nothing really, but I give you everything, all your clothes, all your food, all your, every pleasure that you have, everything that you've got comes from me, I pay for it, it all comes from me. So don't, don't start whinging about 50p a month. You get it, you get so much, and if you need anything more, I would give it to you. And God does that for us. We swim in an ocean of God's goodness day by day and yet we make him out to be miserly we must not distort who God is so they distorted God's character but thirdly well they disobeyed God's word um, if you take your driving test now um, I, you have to do a theory test as a, as a uh, an extra test, first test, theory test, and then you do the practical. And in the theory test these days, you, you watch a video, and it's a, a hazard awareness video, and you're to click the mouse, click the clicker, when, whenever there's uh, some kind of hazard that you can spot on the screen. And so you spot something, you click, spot something, click. You could do that with chapter 17 and 18 of, of, of Judges as a kind of disobedience awareness. If you had a, click, a mouse to click every time someone did something that disobeys God, you would be clicking almost all the way through the two chapters. Maybe you just didn't spot it, but it, all the way through. So much so, I, we can't go through all the list of everything they do wrong. But you spot it right from the start, don't you? Micah says he took the silver from his mum. I mean, he's broken two commandments and not even started the chapter. He's um, not honoured his mother... And he's stolen. And that's right from the start. And as you go through, you just see more and more. The, the mum, Micah's mum, makes the idol. We've already said that's wrong. They've set up a shrine. That's wrong. Micah sets up initially his own son as priest. That's wrong. He shouldn't be doing that. He hires the Levite and pays the Levite to be his own personal private priest. Uh, replacing his son, who doesn't get mentioned from then on, um, which again he shouldn't do. He shouldn't be hiring this person. This Levite shouldn't. The Levite, what's the Levite doing coming in? Shouldn't he have been saying, don't worship idols? But he doesn't. He just goes in, just goes along with it, gets paid individually by Micah. I mean, it's just, it's wrong, 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 wrong. No, 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 you don't do, you just don't do these things. And then the Danites come along. The Danites in chapter 18, they're going way up north to this part of the land where you go, that is not the bit God said that you could have. And yet they send up spies. It seems a bit like with Jericho, a little bit, sending the spies up to go and check out the land when, when Israel first go into the land. Looks like that could be faithful because that sounds a bit like earlier on in the Bible 
uh, Jericho. Although, interestingly, if that's a bit like Jericho, if you know the story of Jericho, Israel sends in spies into the land to check out the land uh, and to check out Jericho. They go into the land, go to Jericho, and they stay at the house of a prostitute called Rahab. If these spies going into the land, where do they stay? Where do they go to? They go to the house of Micah. Parallel house of prostitute and house of Micah. Interesting parallel that, isn't it? That you get house of a prostitute, house of someone who is prostituting themselves religiously by worshipping other gods. Anyway, there you go. Um, The spies go up, go check out the land, come back with a good report. But it's not the land God's told them to take. It's a different bit of the land. And yet they go up and take these unsuspecting people and they set up the, the, the idols and the Levite there having stolen from Micah. I mean, it's just wrong, 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 wrong all the way through. And therefore, clearly, one of the things that we are to learn from this is worshipping the Lord and obedience must go together. You can't just worship the Lord and say, well, I worship the Lord, but who cares about his word? That doesn't work, does it? If we worship the Lord, to worship the Lord, we must obey him. We must submit to him. Now, it's true that we're all sinners. We are. And therefore, we all disobey the Lord. But it is different from saying either I don't care what the Bible says or uh, I know what the Bible says and I think it's wrong. It's such a vital issue in the church at the moment. I mean, it has been through every generation. Are we going to obey the Lord? Uh, Today's issues are that of, particularly that of sexuality and same-sex marriage. These are the big debates in the church, aren't they? Uh, A church is going to say that same-sex marriage is good or going to go with what the Bible says. Will we obey the word of God? That's true for denominations, but it's true for us individually as well, isn't it? Are we going to obey? Now, those are three things that we just picked out. What's wrong? Worshipping idols, distorting God's character, disobeying God's word. For all of us, they are a warning. For some of us, maybe they're a loving rebuke. And the good thing to know is, as we look at this, if we look at these things and say, okay, I've, I've gone wrong here, we can come back to Jesus. He came for sinners like us. None of us is better than any other. And yet there may be particular things that God is highlighting for you today where you're saying, actually, I need to hear that rebuke and to come back to God, confess my sin and receive his forgiveness. That's what's wrong. We'll go through the other two things much more quickly. What's wrong? Where does it lead? Well, initially, do you notice things don't go wrong for the Danites? You kind of like to think... They make a mess of things. They get things wrong. It all goes horribly wrong for them. But it doesn't. They go up north, they attack Laish, and they take it. And they take the land. And they have victory. Which is something just to be aware of, that not every bad endeavour, not every evil we do, the Lord necessarily squashes. Sometimes they go well. Success in life doesn't necessarily signal that we have God's approval. But just map out where things go. The big picture, chapters 17 and 18, starts with one household and idolatry, ends up with a whole tribe 
committing idolatry. And notice that it lasts. End of chapter 18, if you just turn to page 262 uh, and have a look at verse 30, it says, uh, when the Danites set up the idol, it says, verse 30, the Danites set up for themselves the idol, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. That's a long time later. That's talking about exile. That's a long time afterwards. And yet this is saying, actually, this problem of idolatry and these priests being there was a problem throughout the whole of that period. It lasts. Do you see, idolatry here and disobedience to God is like, it's, being, it's like brambles in your garden or like, like ivy or bindweed or something like that, which just comes in and can take over and, and is very hard to get rid of. It's, it's saying it's there throughout. And just because it's popular amongst a whole tribe doesn't mean it's right. And just because it lasts, just because something has history doesn't mean it's right, does it? And Paul in the New Testament warns us in 2 Timothy that some forms of false teaching now are like gangrene. I think we tend to be so individualistic that we tend to think, well, it's just about me and God. And as long as what I'm doing is all right, then we're okay. It doesn't really matter about other people. Maybe it doesn't even matter about other people at Emmanuel or about other churches. That is naive. The Bible warns us false teaching is like gangrene. It's like brambles. It, it, it spreads and it will take hold. After all, if you know about other churches, what's likely to happen if a church goes into vacancy and you, know, you need a, a new vicar? Is it more likely to become more biblically faithful or less biblically faithful? And the answer is, well, it doesn't happen every time. All right. I mean, I'm very thankful John Shepherd appointed at Christchurch. Great appointment. And he's going to keep preaching the Bible. It's wonderful. I'm so thankful to the Lord for that. As you look elsewhere, you look at other churches, the tendency is more likely to be that churches will become less faithful, just a bit less, step by step. False teaching can just get a hold. So that's where it leads. Lastly, what's the remedy? Well, it's in the refrain that we get over and over again. Um, Israel had no king. Israel had no king. What's the writer expecting? What's the writer wanting? A king, you say. Well, yes. But clearly this was written after the time of the exile, after the captivity of the land, because the writer knows about it. So as the writer says Israel had no king, he's writing from a perspective of looking back over lots of kings, actually, over, yes, King Saul, King David, King Solomon, and on and on. And lots of those kings committed idolatry and led Israel into idolatry. I mean, so you could almost say, well, yes, Israel had no king, and they committed idolatry, and then they had kings and committed idolatry. You know, the kings didn't help, necessarily. What's he mean by saying they had no king? It's not just a king. I mean, a king in and of itself doesn't necessarily make anything better. It's a particular kind of king, isn't it? It's the kind of king who will deal with idolatry, who will stand up for what is right and teach what is right and not distort the character of God. Do we have such a king? Yes, we have such a king. Jesus is that king, the king of kings and lord of lords. And we can rejoice that we don't need to have the judges of the book of Judges. Praise the Lord, we don't need them. 
And we don't have those kings from the Old Testament, but we do have the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And how does he rule us? By his word. But don't lose sight of how Jesus ordered things. In speaking on this passage, Dale Ralph Davis says this, Who is Jesus Christ if not our King who rules us? Do we not see Christ ruling as King in Revelation 2 and 3, in his role of judge over and amongst his churches? And has, he not, and has not the shepherd king entrusted to under-shepherds the task of ruling and defending his flock? One of the notable wrongs in these two chapters is that Levite, who gets it horribly wrong. He doesn't do his job. He doesn't oppose the false worship of God. And we've seen in Judges many leaders who've got it wrong, who are flawed, who are failures, And we may be very well aware of church leaders in our time who haven't done their jobs properly, either through not proclaiming and defending the truth or through abusing God's people. And we've thought several times about this in the book of Judges. And the solution is not to reject leadership, church leadership. After all, Jesus is the one who in Ephesians gives the various gifts of leaders to the church. What we need is not to get rid of church leaders, but rather to have faithful leaders. Leaders who humbly minister under the chief shepherd, faithful to him and his word. So as John Newell has said a couple of times in his sermons in in Judges, when he's preached, will you pray, will we pray for church leaders, national and local? It's an incredible task. Pray for humility and faithfulness to the good shepherd. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the warnings in your word and we pray that you would help us to heed them. Father, if we need rebuke, please would you help us to listen, to be humble before you, ready to respond. And we praise you that we have a good king, the one who came and died for us, that we might be forgiven, that rebels like us might come into your kingdom. We praise you for Jesus, our King. Amen.